We're in the series on uh, counterfeits, where we're looking at how modern society is counterfeiting uh, different things that we've known for many years to be true, Christian structures in society. And I'm told that one of the ways that Secret Service agents are trained to identify counterfeit bills, uh, such as the image behind me where my corgi has replaced Benjamin Franklin, um, is by studying very carefully authentic dollar bills. And that's what I want to do today. And what I want to study very carefully is how God has made you. And specifically, I want you to understand exactly who you are as a male or as a female. Now, I know you may be thinking, well, I don't need to be told. I've been a male all my life or I've been a female all my life. But uh, I think there may be some interesting things uh, that we can learn about ourselves. You see, the way God has designed you as a male or as a female is fundamentally good. There's value in being male, and there's value in being female. And if for any reason you might somehow decide, decide to uh, desire the other, to be the other, not only would you undoubtedly fail in your efforts to do so, but you would also actually begin to diminish the greatness that God has built into you. And so today... I want to tell you men, but especially you young men and boys, what is so good about being male. And I want to tell you ladies, and especially you young ladies and you girls, what is so good about being female. And to do this, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that might seem somewhat strange, but in this passage there are some very powerful truths. And that passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. If you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one. That's our gift to you. Uh, we invite you to have that on your own for your, for your own sake. We will replace the one that you take. You have my permission. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verse, beginning in verse 2, we read, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is, this is the Apostle Paul. He's talking to the church at Corinth. And then in verse 3, he says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. You see, the word head here means authority. And in the spiritual realm, there are different levels of authority. And what Paul is doing in verse 3 is he's uh, giving the broad application, or the broad general principle, rather. He lays bare the general principle. He's stating the general order of authority in the spiritual realm. And this authority was reflected at creation when God created Adam first and Eve from Adam later. And it, this uh, general principle is applied in, in many different ways in various settings. And we're going to look at specifically the one setting that Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a very specific setting. And I would just say that if somehow you know, it offends you uh, to have this general principle even stated, 
um, that I, I would tell you this, that the Apostle Paul, I think, would be the first to recognize that God raises up women to, comp- to accomplish incredible things. And just you can just look at Scripture, just a, a couple of different examples in Scripture. Whether we're talking about Deborah, who delivered Israel, or Esther, who saved Israel, uh, you're, or whether we're talking about uh, God superintending that women were the first ones who witnessed Jesus raised from the dead. Or you look in the book of Acts at someone like Lydia, a business owner, very successful business owner, who supported Paul and the church that met there. Where did they meet? They met in her house, actually. And so I hope that you won't feel anyway slighted by uh, this general principle stated in verse 3 or the specific application uh, of it that we're going to look into. In fact, if you looked at the very last phrase of verse 3, you shouldn't feel slighted at all. It says that God is the head, the authority of Christ. And see, even Jesus Christ submitted to authority in his life. God the Son submitted to God the Father. And so I truly hope that you don't get too bent out of shape when God, God's Word tells us that our, there are authorities to whom we must submit. You see, in different situations, in different places and times, you're going to have authorities over you. And that's true whether you're male or whether you're female. And if you're going to live your life upset that you are not the ultimate authority, well, you've got a lot of disappointment coming your way in this life uh, because we all have different authorities that we submit to. So let's get to the specific application of this that Paul's talking about in verse 4. He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. What's he talking about? Well, here's the situation. When the church of Corinth gathered together to worship God, they had a lot of different activities that they did. They prayed, they sang songs, they heard someone teach, a lot of different things. And a couple of the different activities specifically that they did, uh, that they practiced, in fact, anybody, man or woman, could publicly do these things in the church when they gathered together, as the gathered church, was this. Two things in particular. Number one, praying to God. And so during their worship services, men or women could, during times of spontaneous open prayer, intercede to God publicly on behalf of the church. The second thing that they did was proclaim prophecies. We see both of these activities listed in verse 2, and this is the specific situation that Paul's addressing. Proclaiming prophecies. So again, during worship, men or, or women could, during times of spontaneous open declarations, proclaim a message that they believed they received from the Holy Spirit. That is what Paul means by prophesying. Now, either one of these two spontaneous spirit-led actions could be done before the gathered church by a man or a woman after all. On the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 2, Peter said that the Holy Spirit being poured out on believers that day was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And he quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. 
Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. And so the Holy Spirit can impress upon any believer that he wishes to pray spontaneously in the Spirit before the entire congregation in an orderly fashion. And likewise, the Holy Spirit of God can impress upon any believer he wishes to prophesy spontaneously in the Spirit before the entire congregation if it's done in an orderly fashion. By the way, there was another practice that they did, and Paul addresses it in chapter 14. And the other practice that they did at the Corinthian church when they gathered together to worship God was this. It was the evaluation of prophecies, or it was the public discernment of prophecies. And so someone might give a prophecy, but then someone else would come along and discern whether that prophecy was truly from God or not. That practice, Paul gives different instructions. He says only men are allowed to give the public discernment of prophecies. Why? Because that would be akin to teaching. Teaching is a role of the elders and the elders or the pastors of the church are to be men. We're not going to dig into that entire situation in teaching, but there it is. And you might say, well, I don't like that teaching. It, does, it sounds sexist to me. Sorry, it's there. So uh, that's, that's, my, that's my explanation. Sorry. Um, verse 4. Let's get back into this subject. Okay? So you have the idea in verse 3 that men who cover their heads as they spontaneously pray or prophesy in the church worship service, uh, that would be dishonoring to their head. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Verses 5 and 6, what about women? Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then let her head be covered. And so this is the practice. When there's spontaneous times of prayer and prophecy, men should not cover their head as they lead the church in that, but women should cover their head. Now, what in the world is going on with all of this? You know, is this just some kind of ancient Jewish custom or, or Roman custom? No, it, it's not an ancient Jewish or Roman custom at all. In fact, this entire passage, Paul gives biblical reasons for it, theological reasons for it. He spends 11 verses giving theological reasons for it, and then another three verses giving uh, arguments from nature. And finally, only in verse 16 does he ever mention anything about customs. And in verse 16, what's mentioned about customs is, He's trying to deal with people that want to be argumentative over the issue. And so it's not built on any kind of ancient custom. These are, these are universal things that Paul is wanting to address. And it's based on the theology, the understanding that we read back in verse 3, that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman. And so how it works out in public worship services when there's spontaneous prayer prophecy is the way that Paul instructs in verses 3 through 5. That men should not have their head covered, women should. Why? Because to do the opposite would be dishonoring to their head. Who's the head? The head of the man is Christ. For a man to cover his head 
while he spontaneously prayed or prophesied, that would be dishonoring to Christ. And for a woman to do that, that would be dishonoring to the male authorities in her life, specifically, most likely, her husband or the elders of the church. And so uh, Paul is not very concerned about social convention. Okay, This has nothing to do with customs. Paul's not trying to be politically correct so he can please the right people. You see, these instructions are based on how God has made human beings and how God is remaking believers in Christ. And so uh, let's keep looking at this passage, and some things may become a little bit more clear. Verse 7, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. What is Paul saying here? Well, first let me tell you something that is implied in this verse. Notice that Paul does not, you would expect if you're reading this for the first time, and Paul was making a contrast between the man and the woman, you'd expect Paul to say that the man is the image of God and the glory of God. He says that in the first part of this verse. And then you'd expect Paul to say, so too, woman is the image of man, and woman is the glory of man. But Paul doesn't say woman isn't made in the image of man. Why? Because women, you're made in the very image of God. Okay? You're not made in the image of man. You're made in the image of God. Now, what Paul says, though, is the second part of that is the glory of God. The man is made for the glory of God. And so, we read back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, by the way. I don't want to skip this verse. That God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, male and female. He created them. He created them, male and female. So male and female are both made in the image of God. I just want to make sure that's, that's clear. Now again in verse 7, we have this idea that both man and woman are made in the image of God, and man is also the glory of God. Here's the, here's the picture of what's going on here. If a man in worship was to cover his head as the Spirit of God is leading him to pray or prophesy, since the man is the image of, excuse me, since the man is the glory of God, the man, by covering his head, would be diminishing God's glory. And when we come together to worship God, everything we do should be to glorify Him. Nothing should be done that diminishes the glory of God. And so if a man were to cover his head, it would diminish the glory of God. On the other hand, if a woman prays or prophesies before the gathered congregation, and she, being the glory of man, should cover her head, then, well, she should cover her head. Why? Because to leave her head uncovered would be to glorify man. And in worship, we're not here to glorify any man. We're here to glorify God. All, God is, all glory is to be given to God. And so one of the ways that we glorify God in worship is by respecting the order and the authority that God has established in creation. A head covering worn by a woman praying and prophesying before the gathered church shows respect to the authority that God has established in the church. And to not wear a head covering while praying or prophesying, the woman would essentially be saying this, I refuse to submit to the authorities 
that God has placed in my life, whether it's the elders of the church or even my own husband. The problem with that is that if any of us refuses to submit to the human authorities that God has placed in our lives, then in actuality, we're refusing to submit to the God who established those authorities. Verses 8 and 9, Paul continues. He says, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither man, excuse me, neither was created, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. What's Paul talking about? He's going back to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God created the man first. The woman was created from the man in Genesis 2. Why was the woman created? Because even though the man was uh, uh, perfectly made by God, even though the man had not ever sinned, the man was still incomplete without the woman. And so the woman was made as the perfect complement to the man. Without the woman, obviously, the man had no way to multiply and fulfill and fill the earth. The man actually had no way to obey God completely, and so he was incomplete. Verse 10, Paul writes, This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And it was like, what? What do the angels have to do with anything? Well, angels are the guardians of God's created order. Angels may be present today as we worship God. The God who created the angels that are present with us, the God who created us, the God who created all of creation, and the God who has set order to his creation. Angels may be observing us in worship. In fact, angels may even be worshiping with us. And if we were to violate the order of creation while we claim to worship the Creator, if our actions somehow during worship were to flip authority on its head, it would not honor the God who established that authority, that created order. The angels might cease to worship God with us. They might even report us to God, telling Him that we're making a mockery of God's good and perfect design, all the while claiming to honor Him. They might tell God that we are giving evil spirits an opportunity to dishonor God and that unbelievers might be encouraged to blaspheme God. And I'm not sure exactly what God would do to such a church, but I'd rather not find out. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman, for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. And so this teaches us the very obvious fact that there is a mutual interdependence between man and woman in God's creation. We simply need each other. Originally, again, the woman came from the man. But after that, every man that has ever lived owes his existence in large part to the woman who carried him for the better part of a year, who gave birth to him, who fed him and nourishes him. It is the woman who gives and sustains life. That's why Eve was called the mother of all the living. Paul writes in verses 13 through 15, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair 
is given to her as a covering. Here in these verses, Paul is making an argument from nature. And according to this last part, verse 15, it seems that if a woman has long hair, then her long hair could be her hair covering, her head covering, if she were to pray or prophesy in church, or at least perhaps that's the case. And finally, in verse 16, Paul says, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul pretty much shuts down any type of debate or argument over this issue. This is simply the way that it should be. And so there are some very powerful truths that are taught here. Also, maybe some very unpopular truths that are taught here. But Paul is establishing once and for all the created order of things and God's the authority that God has set up in his creation. And so now I want to talk to you ever so briefly about how incredible you really are as a part of God's orderly creation. And so I want to talk to the men and the women here, and we're going to save the best for last. Robert Lewis wrote a work called The Quest for Authentic Manhood, and he talks about the four faces of manhood. And he makes this point that men, God has given you the face of a king. You are made in the image of God, men. He is the king over all. And being made in his image means that you are his royal ambassador on earth. You represent the king of kings. And if you represent the king of kings, if indeed you are rightly called the prince of the most high, then it is important for you to possess certain characteristics that you must pass on to your sons and daughters, to your grandchildren, and to the men in your church and your community. Men, you must have courageous moral integrity. Resist the temptation to give in to the sins of the flesh. Men, you must have righteousness. You need to be honest and just with your decisions so that you can bring pleasure to your heavenly Father in whose image you're made. Men, you must have a strong work ethic. Put in an honest day's work and do your work as unto the Lord. Men, you must be a man of your word. It is not enough for you to make promises. You must keep them. Men, you need to be a spiritual leader in the home, in the church, at work, in your community. Men, you need to be faithful. You need to honor your covenant, to remain true to your wife, and you need to be there for your children. Men, you need to be a servant leader. Take the initiative and act on it while being a servant to those you lead. Men, you need to accept responsibility for your actions. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your circumstances. It doesn't matter if it's not your fault. It is your responsibility. In whatever arena of life the Lord gives you, let your attitude be, if we have a problem, then I have a problem. Take responsibility. Men, you need to act on the privilege of training your children. Train them how to be good. Introduce them to Jesus. Teach them the scriptures. Men, you have the face of a king. You also have the face of a friend. You have, men, the unique ability to connect 
with others. And so you need to do the things that build friendships. You need to be loyal and accountable, truthful and trustworthy. You need to come to the aid of those in need. You need to build up others where they are weak. And you need to learn to have fun because that's what friends do. Men, God has given you the face of a warrior. God gives every man a territory to explore, an adventure to take, a world to build. In the adventure of your life, there will be danger, there will be risks, uncertainties, and the very real possibility of being hurt. So if you're going to be the warrior that God has designed, you must spend time in training, searching introspectively into your soul. You need to discover who you are, what your purpose in life is, and what cause greater than yourself you're willing to give yourself to. As a warrior equipped by God, you must realize that the greatest fight of your life will never be on the outside but within. You are in a fight for your heart, a fight for your mind. Your heart must be courageous and not fearful. This way you can face adversity head on and be the strength. That, the, that your wife and family need. You can absorb the pain that might make another man falter. As a warrior, you have an identity in God's eyes that you may not yet even know. You see, to others, he was Simon Peter. But to Christ, he was the rock. To others, he was Abram. But to God, he was Abraham, father of nations. To others, he was Jacob. But to God, he became Israel, the one who strives with God. To others, he was David, the shepherd boy. But to God, he was king of Israel. And as a warrior, your strength is not only found in weaponry and fierceness, but in the truth that God's grace is sufficient for you, for your strength is made perfect in weakness. You have discovered already, I hope, how to be saved by God's grace, but you must learn to rely on God's grace daily. And finally, men, God has given you the face of a lover. You are to be tender, compassionate, and sensitive to the needs of your wife and children. You must gain the capacity to connect with your own emotions and feelings so that you can connect to those you love. You must go where no man likes to go, to the point of vulnerability. There you might be hurt. You might be rejected. It takes courage to go there. But the, and there will always be a temptation to never trust anyone, but you must learn to trust others if you want to build trust in yourself. As a lover, you must be aware of how you touch, the body language you use, how you give eye contact, and the tone of your voice. You must spiritually connect with others, but especially your wife. For Scripture calls us to live with understanding of her. What an incredible and glorious calling and privilege it is to be a man. You are a king, a friend, a warrior 
and a lover. And I want all of you who are boys to hear this. I want all of you teenage young men to hear this. There is nothing wrong with you as a male. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You are a prince, soon to be a king. You are a friend who can be closer than a brother. You are a warrior in training. And you can be a lover with a family of your own to love. And even if God gives you the gift of celibacy, your family is still the family of God. Now, let me talk to you ladies. And you ladies, I know. You ladies may be thinking, what? Can this preacher say to me, on my worst day, I have more understanding of what it means to be a woman than this preacher will ever know, and I admit to be guilty of that charge. It's true. I cannot argue with that. And there's a reason why the Bible tells men to live with their wives in an understanding way, because if we understood you, we wouldn't have to be commanded to do it. So, the point is very well taken that I am completely unqualified to tell you ladies how wonderful it is to be a woman. So instead, permit me to read a brief article by Abigail Dodds. She is a wife, a mother of five, and an author. This is what she says. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? That's Song of Solomon 6.10. She writes, who indeed? A woman, of course. Where but in the scriptures could we find a vision of womanhood as glorious as this? Who but our God? could design something with such blinding beauty alongside robust strength. The Psalms and Proverbs fill out this vision of a woman that shows its fortitude clothed in splendor, a woman who presides over her domain with strong arms and resourcefulness, Proverbs 31. Daughters that are corner pillars whose strong support could only be matched by their exquisiteness, Psalm 144, verse 12. Yet the vision our culture offers is a sad consolation that exchanges the glory of feminine strength for a treadmill race to nowhere. It squanders the kind of influence that is found primarily in the soil of the home. The home, that center of all learning, the heart of nation building, the dispenser of love and stability, the venue for gospel hospitality for single and married alike, in short, the footings of humanity. This home-based influence, because of Christ, can last for a thousand generations. Yet our culture urges us to cast it aside for the pursuit of rewards a little less off in the distance and certainly ones that don't require diapering. And what does it offer in return? Women who strive against themselves, at war with the seeming redundancy of two X chromosomes, in a competition we were never made for, and in our hearts we, really, we don't really want to win. 
For when a woman sets herself up alongside a man as made for the same things and without distinction, the result is not uniformity, but rather a reverse order. Indeed, in order for her to become like a man, she becomes less and less. He becomes less and less like one. And that's something that most women, even the most ardent feminists, recoil at in their heart. Because, not because femininity is detestable, but because on a man it is grotesque. Feminine glory is suited only for a woman. Not because men and women have nothing in common. We have everything in common as bone of the same bone, flesh of the same flesh. But because our sameness only makes sense in light of the triune God who is distinct in three persons. When we forsake our feminine glory in pursuit of the uniqueness that belongs to men, we abandon our God-given glory. We become usurpers, persistently insisting that our uterus and biology are equal to nothing, irrelevant. Women believe the lie that in order to be relevant in a man's world, you become like a man when the opposite is true. Do you want to be relevant? Then shock the world and be who you were made to be, a fearless, unflappable, God-fearing woman. Do not abandon the very differences that make you essential. The unique influence of a godly woman is in transforming things. A woman is to be compared to a crown on the head of her husband, Proverbs 12.4. This is not because she's merely decorative, but because she is the thing that makes her good man great. She transforms a promising bachelor into a purposeful, respected husband. He gives his seed, and by some miracle and mystery, God has designed her body to nurture and grow a new person. In this transformative role, whether single or married, a woman mimics her Savior. Like him, she submits to another's will, and also like him, God uses her to take what was useless on its own and shape it into glory. Dirty things clean. Chaos turned to order, an empty kitchen overflowing with life and food, children in want of knowledge and truth, and a mother eager to teach, a man in need of help and counsel, and a woman fit to give it, friends and neighbors with a thirst for the truth, and a woman opening her home and heart to share it with them. A woman is a prism that takes in light and turns it into an array of greater, fuller glory so that those around her now see the rainbow that was contained within the beam. She constantly radiates reminders of God's faithfulness. She reads the black and white pages of the Word of God and takes on the task of living them out in vibrant hues for her children, her neighbors, and the world to see. When the Bible commands feeding, nourishing, Training and love, a godly woman sets to the task, enhancing and beautifying everything around her. God's design outlined in the scripture is a vision for womanhood that is not just right and to be obeyed. It is experientially better than all the world has to offer. And it doesn't just apply to those who are married or mothers. Single women of any age are meant for full godly womanhood womanhood, to be a mother in the deepest sense that is spiritually nurturing and growing all God's given her. 
God has made us for glory, women, she writes. Not glory that terminates on us, but glory that spends itself, glorifying everything given to us and points in all things to Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the Savior and ultimate transforming one. And as we behold Him, His perfection, His saving work, and His glorious face, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. End of article. Girls, I want you to listen to me. Young ladies, pay attention. If anyone ever tells you that you're just a girl, if any man ever treats you with less respect than you deserve as a glorious princess of the King of Kings, I want you to know that they are speaking and acting from their ignorance. There is nothing wrong with you girls. You are not insufficient in any way. God made you just the way he planned. God knew what he was doing when he made you as a male or as a female. And God invites you to enter into a relationship with him if you haven't already. God wants you not only to know yourself better, but to know him, the creator of all of creation. 